share something with you. I do have my moment when I get really irritated by the traditional form of Buddhism for women. But at the same time, like evening like this one, I don't know if you realize that the place I have where I sit with a whole group of monks, senior monks, and so on, including the abbot, Savar Janamaro, I'm here in a position of teaching. It's quite amazing. In the Buddhist world of nuns and novices, just to, just to get a sense of appreciation for what is offered here. Yeah, I just want to share that with you before I start to say anything. And I'm not taking it for granted. It's very special um, situation for us. Doesn't make much. Doesn't mean much for me personally, but I think it's worth noticing. Yeah. So <clears throat> I've been invited to say a few words. You know me. I <laughs> probably will be more than a few words. Uh, some reflection on the whatever. And I don't, as you know, um, most of us don't actually prepare our talk, although we, I, I tend to, so when, when I'm invited to give a talk, that creates a sense of um, interest and a sense of uh, what will be useful. Sometimes it's what will be useful to me as well. And so it's a, it's a kind of shared interest. And... Um, um, so even though we don't prepare it, there's still, the, you could see the practice itself has been a preparation to share the Dhamma with others. So there's not a, a, an absence of preparation. Uh, the preparation is a, a sense of complete, total, deep devotion to this path of practice. Deep love for the Dhamma. Deep, deep love for the Buddha and the teachings. Yeah, and the mantra that came to me several times tonight, and I was hoping I would not forget it, is like the Buddha, absolutely pure, with ocean-like compassion, destroyer, um, possessing the clear sight of wisdom, destroyer of worldly self-corruption, devotedly indeed, the Buddha I revere. And suddenly you get something like a bright light shone onto these verses. And then the, the chanting we do every day, okay, on the describing the Buddha and then the Dhamma and then the Sangha. The Dhamma is like, like a lamp illuminating the path and is through the deathless, that which is beyond the conditioned world, devotedly indeed, that Dhamma I revere. And then the Sangha, the most fertile ground for cultivation. Those who have realized peace, awaken after the accomplished one, noble and wise, or longing, um, abandoned, devotedly indeed, I revere the Sangha. So you may think that the Sangha is some kind of groups of robes in orange and brown and white and so on. And the Buddha is maybe somebody who lived 25 years ago, 2,500 years ago. And the Dhamma, some sort of perhaps something that's external to yourself, something separate from you. But actually, those 
words are leading to the path described by the Buddha. And the path is not somewhere outside, it's the mind itself. Now at first when we start practicing the Buddha Dhamma, we have a sense that um, there's, I have a mind, my mind. Um, you might start looking at your mind as um, somebody who, you know, yourself. Uh, you may have experienced uh, the suffering of the worldly, um, you know, the worldly dhammas, the suffering of not being loved, the suffering of being successful, the suffering of having had a hard time, suffering of not being appreciated, uh, defamed by people, criticized, hated, and so on. And once you, um, you know, um, you after experiencing these things, uh, many people uh, either go into drinking and into drugs, or even actually to the point, extreme point of killing themselves. And if you're lucky, then you know you have enough, uh, uh, you know, strength of mind, or let's say conditions in yourself, seeds you could call them, right, to uh, wake yourself up and say, maybe there is another way. I was glad when Ajahn Amaro mentioned this little passage of the Buddha, which is one of the few passages that really strikes me always as being so incredibly basic in a way. And yet, it took me 32 years for me to find out about that. It's simply when I, and I read this passage many years later, when it makes me it makes me smile really because I realize oh that's just me yeah that's all of us so the Buddha the Buddha says you know suffering either ends in further suffering more suffering or it ends in search the most search I think for Westerners is a beautiful word isn't it searching exploring there's something very freeing about that. You don't have to kind of believe. You don't have to be frightened to get, uh, you know, out of the dogma of a particular philosophy or religion. You're not going to go to prison because you're, you know, you're thinking this way or that way. You're not going to be, uh, you know, uh, molested because of your ideas and so on. Searching into an exploring mind. It's a free mind, in other words able to see things as they are, not as other people want you to see it, not as a religious dogma is asking you to see things, not because you're frightened to disappoint people to think differently. And so that's very freeing, isn't it? Liberating. Almost before you even start, you have a sense that the, the path is open for you. And then you can walk on it and start exploring and start searching. So this is something that uh, we're all very blessed to be able to share this life. The last nearly three months now, and a week and a half, will be our lifestyle will be changing for most of you. And while I'm here, and I probably will repeat it on the day we share things, uh, I just want to express uh, just the... the the incredible, truly a blessings to have so many people coming from so many different worlds, so many different countries, sharing together this search, this path of exploration, this path of liberation. It's very wonderful. I just want to say thank you uh, tonight. Uh, in particular, to every to all those who have supported us during this time, with such grace and such delight to see all of you living with us, and such a beautiful behavior, beautiful generosity, it's very very touching for me, and I'm sure for so many people here who practice as monks and nuns and novices and so on. You are a great support to us. Without you, without your love and kindness and devotion, uh, maybe our life will be different here. So you are very much part and parcel of this uh, three months.
of our retreat. So that's for you, a bit behind the white. <laughs> and uh, as far as um, <clears throat> practice goes, you know, our retreats are quite amazing, aren't they? You go through everything. <laughs> I don't know about you, but even after 40, so many years, so many decades, the landscape of retreat is quite, in my mind, can't speak for other people's mind, but in my mind, it's quite amazing. It's just like you go up and down. Uh, you, you know, everything that hasn't been attended during the year starts coming up, you know. The old patterns, the old kind of structures of your mind. I've had enough of this tradition. I've have, it's, it's not even that, that strong, actually. This kind of thing I could say maybe 10, 15 years, 20 years ago. But it, it's more you, you can see life as it is. The repetition. And the, to me, in my mind, there's absolutely uh, no struggle with that at all. It's just how, as it is. But I can see also the feeling that comes with it, you know. I don't even want to see it differently. I'm quite happy to see things as they are. But it's, it's like this something is still knowing inside. It's like kind of looking for something. You know, it's like the, the sense of me looking for something. It, it's not satisfied. And then you go into meditation, and that feels good, you know. You can you sort of, suddenly you get into a, a, you know, a focused mind. You have a good conditions, you know, nobody's going to jump on you and do something horrible or threaten you in any way. It's a very safe environment. You're surrounded by wonderful people. But there's still the mind, is this restlessness of just being human. It's kind of restless, isn't it? used to experience that 40 years ago and it, it still is it's much more kind of you know I've seen it for so long now I know it very well and it's gone I mean, a lot of it has gone fortunately but when you really are faced with yourself with nothing to do nothing to know nowhere to go no you know um, it does um, show you very clearly the work you have to do which you cannot sometimes know until you see this yourself very clearly. So this is a, a great privilege of our community to be able to do three months retreat like that in silence, well, mostly silent, and uh, with so much teaching, support, good conditions, fantastic food, good friendship, even with difficult, this, this life is, is not just without its own problem. Don't worry. There's a lot of life underneath those bodies. You know, they look very peaceful, but there's a lot of things happening that can be bothersome, that can be uh, painful, that can be uh, really a source of great distress, you know, for people. So it's not like it's hunky-dory and everything is fine. You know, so one of the dangers when you practice meditation is that um, I had an interesting exploration myself, quote unquote, <laughs> during this winter retreat, and I came across some also interesting facts and teachings and so on, which I really I was curious about, and. Um, so one of the things I, I saw really with the mind, you know, everything is just a form. When we talk about Sankara, the whole world that we live, the whole world that we project outside is truly just Sankara. It's just truly just a form sh shaping itself up in the mind. It can be a shadow, it can be very colorful, it can be, you know, even a desire comes into a form, some kind of form, you know. We don't see this so clearly when we are busy, busy with the external world, because the form takes something, a kind of jump out externally and you become very solid. You may be restless and then you do something that to get this restlessness out of the way. 
that experience of restlessness become an object, a solid object. And somehow it's, you lose that sense of <laughs> the dukkha of restlessness. <laughs> the dukkha is helpful because the dukkha is really something that uh, brings up a sense of questioning, of curiosity. I don't want this dukkha. I don't like this dukkha. What is it? Is it them or me? Or is it the dog or the cat? Is it the food? Is it what? We always try to find a reason for this dukkha. But then the Buddha does say that, you know, that uh, the world we create, when, uh, uh, you know, in one of the suttas, when somebody was asking the world, the world, what do you mean by the world, you know? So I don't always remember all the words of the Buddha, so I don't want to quote him. I can't quote him verbatim. But certainly I can say that thing I remember, there is no end of the world without the end of dukkha. <laughs> That's how you can remember that. So obviously this world that he's talking about is a world of dukkha. Do you understand? The world associated with uh, what makes ourselves miserable, what makes ourselves ourself unhappy, unsatisfied, you know, uh, restless, stress, and so on. So, um, it's quite an extraordinary thing to observe the world from inside, from our, the inside, our mind itself. When you realize that everything that you experience really has its, has its you know, is born into this the world of our mind. Neither good nor bad, it's just that's how it is. And um, one thing what I find interesting, I discovered a, a website. Uh, it's actually a, more like a, <laughs> an enormous, um, uh, you know, it's like an enormous uh, book on the internet of um, Buddhist teachings, you know, started by a scientist, a Sri Lankan scientist who was a, physicist for many, many years, taught in America and uh, for many years at university. And then he was even um, honored with some kind of special, um, you say, record of his, you know, that, that came from his search and his um, work. And then it, he, he sort of, um, you know, he, he, he retired and dedicated the rest of his life till now uh, to the Buddha Dhamma. And it's interesting because um, <laughs> he's obviously got a restless mind, I find. But the way he put everything together, all his, uh, all his note about Dhamma and practice and so on, you know, and it's from the suttas, uh, you know, you've got a red line in between because and every red line you can click and go to something else to show you what this with the definition of this and the definition of that. So, like, in one page, there's about 20 red lines, you know, which means referring you to something else. So I said, wow, he doesn't know what restless mind is. You get so tempted to click on the red and then go back and, uh, you know, four lines and then another red line and you can come back. Or you can dismiss them and look at them later on, you know. But one thing he said was, was interesting, you know, when you talk about uh, the Buddha uh, sort of path of teach of the aim of the Buddhist teaching is to actually to realize Nibbana. And so he's very keen to um, explain uh, his way of looking, explaining, of explaining Nibbana. And he talks about the many worlds you can be reborn into the, um, into the Buddhist world. You can be reborn into like, I think, 27 realm of existence. And to lower realms, human realms, and the higher, you know, the deva realms or the divine realms of existence. And he was just pointing out that all these realms are actually deal with rebirth. You understand? And Nibbana is the end of birth. <laughs> so that leaves, that leaves people quite puzzled because all we know is birth. Do you understand? So that's one thing that struck me. I'm always interested in the fact that we can't explain everything you know, and to make peace with that. But at least we can know what rebirth is, what birth is and rebirthing is. And all the realm of existence, whether it's devas or 
higher realms, the higher Brahma, the Brahma realm, the, uh, you know, the one we recite when we do the four, the teaching of the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, all these realms have to do with birth. So it's really it's quite something is very keen on demonstrating maybe Nibbana is not part of this various realm of existence. It's the, uh, the ending of birth. So that's interesting. You know, just remember that. And um, so that leaves kind of the mind to be to have more space. Like you know, people want to be reborn into this realm of existence, that realm of existence, and so on. You know, you still believe strongly that if you do certain things, you know, for long enough, you'll be reborn into the maybe to Sita heaven or the, you know, Brahma world and so on. I still remember Ajahn Anand when I was in Thailand and um, uh, Princess Diana, I heard when I was in the forest, they told me that Princess Diana had died. And that was a big thing, interesting, for the, I think the royal family in Thailand is probably well known. They probably like each other. And, um, you know, it was a big thing. We even, I still remember, we even watched her funeral on a computer, on the screen, maybe it was a TV screen, in the forest, in a forest monastery. Can you believe it? <laughs> and one day, Ajahn Anon was kind of asking me, what do you think, what do you think Princess Diana was reborn, you know? And, um, you know, what do you think? Which realm of existence? You know, which, which were... And, Joking, I mean, half joking. He just said, uh, you know, probably in the, in the two, I think he said the two Sita realms because she liked beautiful things. You know, she was beautiful and she likes beautiful things. Probably in the two Sita, you know, one of, one of those beautiful existence, you know. So that was him, kind of whether he knew that or not, we don't know. But nevertheless, you know, we were left with somebody reborn into this realm of existence. Now, when we talk about practice, you know, the Buddha set up a very clear path of meditation to see what the, the obstacles to realize the, the ending of birth. And the ending of birth, when he talks about this, it's really pointing to the, um, the, the, con the unskillful conditions of our mind that that are generating so much suffering in the world. The suffering of greed, the suffering of, uh, you know, the suffering of anger and hatred, the suffering of delusion, not knowing, being in the dark, being confused, being, you know, like me, I was confused for 32 years. You know, it's a long time. I never thought I was confused. But then when you wake up, suddenly, ah, <laughs> I was asleep. <laughs> right. Now I know. Right? So, many people spend a whole life asleep. They don't know. They, they're just very lively, even. They can be very lively and happy and all that sort of fun to be with, but they kind of asleep. They don't know the, the world. They don't know themselves. They don't know, you know. And in, in a Western philosophy, you know, this <clears throat> sentence, you see, know thyself, you know. That's, that's one very important aspect of being human, to know yourself. So this close, close to the, the Buddha's teaching, when you know yourself, then you can make peace one thing with yourself. You can make peace with your world. You know, you, you don't have to be hating yourself forever or, um, you know, destroying the sense of self forever. You just begin to understand through wisdom what this me, what this personality is about. So a lot of the time in our practice, what we do, and it's another thing I discovered this winter retreat, which I'm really pleased with, because it's a theme I've had in my practice for a long, long time. It's not a new theme. But it's something that, it's always interesting for me when people give me on the, on, on the theme that I'm interested in, a new view on it. They have the, the view from their experience. It's interesting for me especially when I feel a sense of trust and the sense that the person is talking about what she or he, uh, from personal experience. 
So one thing that I notice in meditation, and I think we all struggle with that, it's not just a, an isolated event. We don't quite know what to make of meditation at first, you know. We go into Vipassana, now Vipassana is like, you know, a world movement. Yeah, it came from America, from the American studying meditation in Asia, came back and thought, oh, Maybe, maybe not intentionally, not sort of trying to think how they, what they're going to do with their practice, but it came back to the West as a Vipassana movement because mostly it started in America, you know, with Joseph Goldstein, with um, Jack Confield, Sharon Salzberg, and somebody else, I can't remember the name, but they started this big Vipassana movement, which is everywhere now, even in England, you know, Everywhere you have vipassana in every aspect of life. There's a little booklet which I found uh, when I was searching for this particular topic a year, two, a few years ago, which it is called the mindful. I think it's called the mindful country. It's UK. The mindful country, and it's explaining to you how this mindfulness has been integrated in every aspect of the society, from the government to the hospital to the school to the, uh, you know, um, uh, business to everywhere, everywhere you have it. NHS, psychology, psychotherapy, the whole of England is actually submerged with a mindfulness practice, according to this little book, or at least intending to bring mindfulness everywhere, in school, in education, and everything. So this is an interesting aspect of the Buddhist teaching, you know, to bring mindfulness into the world. What is missing, of course, as a Buddhist nun, I have a different view on these things, is the fact that we've lost the, the context. You know, people do mindfulness to um, calm down, to be more relaxed, to maybe find a refuge. All of us are looking for a stable place somewhere in this crazy world of ours, right? And we don't know where the refuge is. Fortunately, the Buddha talks about three refuges, you know, and they're very real. Fortunately, without them, I think, you know, most of us will go crazy if we continue to wake up without a refuge because the world is pretty mad, you know, inner and outer outwardly as well. It's a really unstable reality, unstable world. Very frightening, can be very frightening, can be scary, it can be really drive people mad, drive people to be alcoholic for the rest of their life without a true refuge. So, what happened with meditation is that sometimes we're still part of the, uh, the game, you could say, or the forces in our mind, which is the forces of becoming and the forces of not becoming, which is one of the causes of suffering, you know. And it's not really ours, it's just happened, you know. It's almost like you notice a river always follows a way, easy way to come down from the hill down to the ground, down to the, the, the lower, lower ground. How does the river go? Just finding the easier way to go down. It doesn't have control over it, do you understand? You just follow the trajectory of the earth. Easiest way, it goes to, and it turn around, and there's a lot of little turns and uh, loops and all that. And you say, oh, when you look at it from the plane, you say, wow, this is an interesting trajectory. It's just a, it just went according to the nature, you know. So our mind is the same. It takes according to nature, you know. It follows its pathway according to karma, you know, like tendencies according to habits, according to conditionings, and so it follows its tendencies. And with meditation, then we are getting some kind of teaching about how to meditate, and very often we go into extreme always, you know, at, at the beginning. We get really kind of, <clears throat> you know, according to our habits, we know how to be, we know very well how to be willful, we know how to be really 
tough on ourselves if we have done, you know, a lot of study or a lot of training in some kind, you know, then we know we need a discipline, a strength, a toughness, and, you know, no messing around and so on. So we bring this to the meditation, huh? and then after f maybe a few months, you say, I don't want to meditate anymore, it's getting worse for me. <laughs> because you, you're making your mind stronger, stronger with conditions that are not particularly useful, you know. To become more willful, to become more angry with oneself, dissatisfied with oneself, because you're not getting it right, according to the books. That doesn't lead you to peace, does it? So, a great chunk of our meditation practice has to do with bearing with the fact that we're beginners <laughs> on the path. We're beginners. We just don't know how to do it yet. We push too hard. We don't push hard enough. And that can go on for years, you know. We're tense, we're uptight when we meditate. And then we get really all over the place when we lose, we get out of our cushion. We don't, but the mind just start getting, you know, coffee, tea, chocolate, everything, you know, after, you know, the cushion is good, you know, for really looking good inside ourselves. We don't have anything to distract us too much except maybe all the thoughts and feelings and so on, stories and past and future and so on. But at least we don't have any cupboards next to us or maybe neighbors that we really want to run away from because we drive, they drive us nuts, you know. So we just kind of, for one little while, we, are, we find a bit of peace in our practice. But really... You must, we must not dis, uh, sort of forget that the whole path of this teaching is about seeing and knowing. I teach for those who see and those who know, say the Buddha. At least I remember, maybe the know is extra, but for those who see. For me, for some reason, it must strike something deep in me because when I hear this, I feel incredibly uh, it's become very real for me. And I don't, re I don't wait to read this to know. I've seen it for decades. And then suddenly I read it in the teaching and I say, yes, of course. If you don't see it, nothing happened. It's like you have a wound, but if you don't see it, you might die for not taking care of it. Do you understand? You might get infection. You might get all kinds of things. You don't heal it. Right? If you don't see a bad habit, like you start drinking, and you don't notice, you start drinking more and more and more. You become an alcoholic before you know it. Same like a drug addict. You take a bit of drugs here and there, you take a bit more, you take a bit more, take a bit more, you can't get away from it, and you become a drug addict. Same with food. You know? Food is, is great. I mean, I know that one very well, you know. When you say, I'm not going to eat that anymore because it's not good for me and the whole rational mind comes behind it and say, yes, because of this, because of that. I know it's not good to eat that. And, you know, you've, read, you've done all the cookery book on the healthy food and you know all the things that are really nasty for you. And the next thing you know, you have your hand in the cupboard and you take a big bar of chocolate and you eat it all even though you've been said to yourself the day before, never again will I eat chocolate because it's so bad for me. I mean, I make extreme like that. I'm making an extreme example. Of course, it's, it's more subtle than that. But that's what happened also with meditation, right? Many often we miss the goal or we miss the target. Why? Because we're not interesting to look at the mind as it is. We look at the mind when it's concentrated and it has pushed underneath a level where nothing is seen. It has repressed nicely all the kilesa of greed, all the kilesa of anger, all the kilesa of delusion. Nicely. You have a nice piece of cement there. And it looks flat and nice. Peaceful. Nothing is happening. You're concentrated. And I was reading recently the, the experience of somebody who studied, I'm not going to name school, you don't need to know, you can come to me if I want to know, 
for many decades, several decades doing, in fact, I met two groups at two different times the last year until now, who did for a long, long time a particular meditation. Two different groups, two different schools. And these groups um, came to the point where they realized that there was something missing. It's interesting. Their wisdom probably told them there was something missing. What was missing is that the um, one was the one person said he could not understand nibbana in that particular. He hadn't, you know, hadn't got really the handle of what nibbana was in his practice. And another group was he was more like, oh, we practice with one aspect of the five candles, not the others. Now I'm not saying. They were right, but that was their experience. And it felt very tight. And then <clears throat> what happened to one person who didn't realize that about Nibbana? He, was, he became a monk, and he realized that um, what was missing, from his point of view, for Westerners particularly, he was a Westerner coming back to the West, was metta. And he was invited to teach his Asian tradition, but he decided not to because he wasn't able to really get a handle to teach other, pe other people. And what he came to uh, understand is that he went back to the suttas big time because he didn't have maybe the teacher we have had, like some people have had Ancha, Avada Chansumedo, which is a brilliant teacher from experiential teacher, you know. Not the sutta teacher, but an experiential teacher. That's so the sutta, right in himself. Deeply, profoundly, clearly, without mistakes, you know. So um, those people go back to the suttas, and then they realize, oh, what the Buddha talks about is actually, you, when you meditate, you relax as well. The first thing you start relaxing. You relax, try to make some sense of ease with yourself. You have a meditation object to calm things down a little bit, you know, to let things kind of fall away a little bit so you're not kind of on the M25 of your mind. And then, right, then what happened? What happened when you concentrate and you're not careful you get into a state of mind. You don't even know what state of mind you're in. You might concentrate and you be, get very forceful and very uptight. I still remember doing one of those techniques that those people left for a month myself. And by the time I returned to Chittast, even my cat was in the way. We had a cat called George, which we absolutely adored the nuns. That was a nun's cat. They had Doris. Amongst the Doris, we had George. As an Amarupa, we all remember Doris. <laughs> Those cats saved our life, I think. <laughs> they brought a lot of love out of us, you know. They gave us a lot of love, and they were kind of um, uh, helping us to feel that we still had a lot of love in ourselves. We were very sweet little animals, totally helpless and kind and very loving. Anyway, what happened is, George, I was so concentrated during that month that instead of accepting everything the way it is and opening my, my mind to the way it is, as it is, you know, with peace in my heart and loving kindness and so on, the first thing, it was like beyond me. I thought it was me, but of course by now I know it's not me. It's the conditions, you know. It's like suddenly, oh, George is ruining my practice, you know. He's in the way. Get out of here. I don't want you. Meow, meow. So sweet. It's typical. It's exactly like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm coping here. You know, I could have said it just more ordinary, but that was exactly George meow. Quite loud. And, uh, you know, I, have, I, I want to talk about George a little bit because he used to be a very sweet cat. I don't know about Doris, but he used to wait for us in the lane that go from the cottage to the main house. Even on a rainy day, 
halfway up, we used to hear, meow, at 4 o'clock in the morning, about 4.30, I would say, by the time we got up. And we knew George was in the dark, noticing, making us notice he was around before we stepped on him and squashed his, his tail. <laughs> and we were in the dark. We did have lights, but you never knew. <laughs> anyway, that's my own interpretation. <laughs> but, so to go back to the meditation... It's very easy to get into this concentrated state. And I notice myself, people who are into jhanas often are angry. This is just my, my experience, you know, from many, many, many years ago. Okay? Many people who have a lot of concentration seem to be always angry type. <laughs> I'm not saying all of them. Huh? Many great teachers have reached Nibbana, have, you know, wonderful metta and so on, done the jhanas and so on, so they're not all of them. But it's more like Westerners, you know, it seems to strengthen our sense of, I've got to push, 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 push there to get there. I've got to get to my jhana. Is this the first one, the second, the third, or the fourth, you know? You know. So, what uh, you notice that it's really tensing the mind for many people, before they get there, I suppose. I'm not talking from personal experience. And so, what is interesting, this particular monk was talking about this, um, you know, the, this importance of metta. Because when you start teaching metta, you know, Westerners, we are well known to find it very difficult to practice metta. Because we've been raised on a culture that really is rooted in a lot of angry energy. You know, we've done a lot of wars, and the mind is very angry, right? many Westerners, you know. Like the, the, the Asian, for example, they have uh, something that is maybe lessening their anger. I find people are much more devotional, naturally. They're much more, maybe you could say, even gullible, you know, but see if they have some good things, you know, like even if they get gullible with the good teachers and a good teaching, it's better than nothing at all. You know what I mean? If you're gullible, then the trouble is that you get, get really into It's dangerous if you believe somebody who is not worth believing, you know, dangerous person. So um, I'm coming to what I wanted to explain to you. Um, so the Vipassana. We, we do this practice, and uh, most people think they're doing vipassana when they're not doing vipassana. And people think they're concentrated when they're not concentrated, you know. So it's very confusing for people. But one thing I noticed, I, I actually experimented a bit with what this monk was pointing to, this metta. And I've done a lot of metta myself in my practice. It's not like I'm new to metta. But what I noticed, something very different this time, is looking at the mind truly as it is, which means like your boring mind on the cushion, whatever, you know, the mind as it is. It maybe have no thought at all, but there's feelings and sensations, all kind of thing. And to look at this, and notice the quality of your mind. Is the mind still run by the kilesa when you meditate? Is it run with the desire to finish quick with the time? I've done my, my hours now. Okay, the, the bell ring. Oh, great, now I'm finished. Is it run by the desire to get really a great meditator, which is nothing wrong. You want to be a good meditator. Everybody wants to be a good meditator. You know, with a sense of, got to really push through this, you know, so I can get to that point a bit further, a bit further. So it's not metta. All right? Metta is this kindness just for each moment. And to find a difference, I saw myself recently, just now, in the last little while, the difference just in my body. Even the state of my eyes, I notice my eyes resting and the eyes tensing. So it's very subtle. It's not something that maybe we notice normally. 
noticing the tension in your eye, in your pupil, and the relaxation. You know, the whole part here of the, 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 the face. And uh, what I notice is that we're still going somewhere, doing something without knowing. Sometimes we're not even going to a good place. We go to a place where we feel frustrated, we feel annoyed, we feel, you know, agitated. And we, we complain because we can't calm down, truly. We can't calm down, pro you know. And there are people who calm down, but then they go the other way. They calm down and they fall asleep for two hours. That's the other extreme of the meditation. So one level we get really, you know, the mind is still activated to do something with your meditation rather than to relax, to be at ease, to find a kind, something very easeful and kind just to look at the mind as it is. Not as it will be in 20 years' time when you have reached Nibbana, according to your view, but just to look at the mind as it is. And it's such a difference. That's why I want to share this with you. You know, it's like if I look at this cushion there, this nice cushion, and my mind, instead of observing this cushion, and instead, instead of being witness of this cushion, my mind is still agitated in trying to, to make something of this cushion. Thinking, oh, maybe I should fold it on that side or that side. Maybe I should kind of, uh, I think I might make a patch because of this and that. Maybe I should be turning it. You know, it's like the mind continuing to work, to continuing to, act, to be active. And then we can never calm down. So I knew all that myself in a way many years ago at the beginning of my life. But I knew, the, I knew how to look at the mind as it is. But there was still, of course, this anger in me. There was still this willfulness in me. There was still this pushing in me, which is not so much. You know, things have gone, flown away, fortunately, after few decades, you imagine the mind has lightened up, you know, wouldn't you? <laughs> has kind of moved on a bit, you know. So this is what I feel, you know, you still look at the mind as it is. And what I notice is that how you can easily continue to do these kind of active things at a different level. You get a little frustrated because you don't calm down, see, you know? Is not so peaceful yet, you know. And then you disconnect from the actual environment of your mind. In mind is like a home, you know. Okay, it's like a home. You're looking. You're looking at the sensation. You're looking at the perception. You're looking, whatever. You know. At some point, the mind comes down. You're still looking at perception, feeling of the body, and maybe the body disappears. That's another perception. Okay. You don't feel the body, maybe for, you know, once the mind is more concentrated and so on. Not jhanas or anything like that, but just it's lighter. Things become lighter, right? And you don't stay with that. You're somewhere else trying to figure out what's next kind of thing. So I notice being pointed to this um, uh, metta, to this, call it metta, because loving kindness, everybody, you know, that sounds a bit you know, pinky and rosy and sort of maybe too, not strong enough, for, especially for Japanese, I think. <laughs> Noriko was looking at me. <laughs> there was a samurai, <laughs> the samurai tradition. You don't want anything too fluffy. So it may be a bit fluffy. But metta has a resonance in the Buddhist teaching. You know. Protecting. It's like even as a mother protects with her life and will risk only, protects with her life her only child, right? It's like this kind of metta, loving kindness. So can you protect your mind with the same metta? Not the metta of laziness, the metta of dullness, the metta of, you know, confusion, metta of giving my mind what it wants, so it's happy, like drugs and drinks and whatever. 
sex in it and so on. But the meta that enables my mind to be seen as it is, to, to let my mind be seen as it is, through this kindness, easefulness, you know. The Buddha doesn't talk about tensing the mind, tensing the body, squishing yourself into a, a, a scaphandre, you know, a scaphandre is like French, into this kind of straitjacket. It doesn't, it, uh, from the people re reading the sutta deeply, the, the Buddha doesn't ask people to be in this kind of straitjacket. Easefulness. Find out what it means to be at ease with oneself. To be relaxed within oneself. On your meditation cushion. Not just when you're having the, the best cup of coffee, which is really a great relaxant after it keeps you awake for hours and hours. But once you get it, at that moment, you feel very happy. <laughs> but you can develop the sense of happiness as a true professional happiness maker by experiencing that in yourself. You know, it's not a happiness of having what you want or happiness of thinking happiness is the way to go. No, it's just a sense of well-being, a sense of easefulness, a sense of relaxation. Something you need to discover. We all need to discover that. And this relaxation is just like a foundation. It's like a base that enables us to see things as they are without constantly thinking about what you should do next, next, next. And jumping over the way it is all the time, jumping over what you need to see. You're still over in front. But then instead of relaxing as it is and seeing the Dhamma right here and then, it's so different. Added, you know, for me it's easier to do this because I have done a lot of metta, as I said to you. And I practice metta a lot. And so I'm very at ease with metta, but at the beginning I was still a, a very independent mind that just wanted to do what I wanted to do and nobody was going to tell me what to do. No way. And if they wanted to tell me what to do, I'd just run away. So I know those kind of mind very well. I have lots of compassion for this kind of mind, actually. Those rebellious mind. Me, I just do what I want. I'm not going to do anybody else practice. Just my practice, I know, and that's it. The one that works. Maybe I'll do a Chinsomedo's practice because I really trust him <laughs> completely. <laughs> what he tells me to do, I will do it. But nobody else. Now, things have changed, fortunately. And, um, you know, when you come to that point where you can do metta without reacting violently, you know, finding that... For me, uh, by the way, to be talking to Japanese people, you know, I used to be called a Zen nun by some people because I was always straight, you know, walking and straight. And look, uh, for them, it was Zen, you know. And I liked the idea of being Zen. I wanted to be a Zen nun. Nothing more like, you know, not a kind of, I didn't want to be a Thai nun particularly, but the Zen really inspired me. It was like really strong and direct. No fluffy stuff. And so um, now I'm not a Zen nun or a nun. There are many things you want, but or anything I want. But really the difference is that, um, you know, you don't have to be anything. <laughs> That's the, that's the idea. That's what happened. And so the metta comes very naturally. It's not something that you feel you need to add to yourself at some point. It's like once you've tasted good food and healthy food and healthy companionship and healthy uh, input of any kind, you know, you just love these things and you never want to part from them. Do you understand? Once you see the meta, once you see the effect it has on others, on you, on, on your life, why would you forget something that's so good? But at first, it's quite a bit of hard work to come to that place where meta is the only way. I often say love is the only way, but that's not a bit Christian. 
I say love in the sense of metta. Don't forget the wisdom, of course, you know. But the metta is just a relaxation for the wisdom to start functioning properly. The right view to start functioning properly. Do you understand? First of all, make yourself at ease. And that's what a good teacher does. You know, Ajahn Shah did that for so many people. You know, they went to him and they were in love with him. Ajahn Sumido said he was in love with Ajahn Shah for quite a while. And you know what falling in love is like. It's really nice, isn't it? Right? Until things go a bit wrong, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> yeah. But for a while, you know, at some point you fall in love with the Dhamma. That's even better, <laughs> you know. But that's this easefulness and relaxation we need to, to, for the practice to flourish. And I hope you'd experiment with that and find out for yourself whether there is something that's worth exploring. Yeah, to relax the body, to relax the mind. You know, that's why I did a lot of yoga for myself. For 15 years, I was into yoga big time. Without it, I, I felt I couldn't go through the day, besides the fact I had always borderline blood pressure, which was really intensifying my energy. So the yoga used to help me to balance, to bring the mind. The mind is so powerful. It's everywhere. I did not know at the time, you know. So it was all here. So my mind used to go down into the body, you know, through yoga. I felt I was embodied in a way. The mind, embodied mind, we talk about. Ajahn Suchito talks a lot about that. Yeah? The mind, you don't know until it happens, until you have experimented it. You know, you do half an hour of yoga, if you're very mental and very, suddenly you feel your energy of the brain and the energy of the body have come together. It's very, very nice, gentle yoga. You know. So I think I probably said enough. But remember, metta as a foundation. If you don't have a teacher that brings that out of your heart, I'm sure Janamaro does that for many people. Right? To bring that that sense of everything is okay no matter how awful I think I am, everything is okay. That's the way you have to start, because if everything is not okay, then you start looking at yourself, struggling all the time. When everything is okay, even the struggle is okay, do you understand? And you don't have any problem once you really trust this law of Anicca anyway. It's changing. It's changing all the time. So why make a problem? Have a fun to see things... One thing, um, to see things and seeing them go, but one thing which I want to uh, kind of add before I stop, it's many people, and I was pointed by this teacher, and I said that was very useful points, is that very often we let go at a time when we're quite tense. You know, many of us for a long time our letting go is quite a tough experience. <laughs> For one thing, maybe we have an idea, we should let go. That's tense enough, isn't it? Should. And in that time, because if, if it takes too long, then I have just give up on that. Do you understand the amount of complex things there is mixed up with all this? Right? We never notice maybe the feeling of what happened when I start relaxing with my kilesa, that a reason, a rage or something, to start relaxing with it and feeling it's okay, it's all right. And just being with it, relaxed mood. And having the joy and the happiness of the experience when the kilesa is gone. It's a very liberating moment. Do you understand? when your uh, delusion has gone, when you have stopped clinging, grasping to that delusion, that moment of greed, by relaxing with that moment of greed, 
with that moment of dissatisfaction, with that moment of pain, of uneasiness, of misery, you relax into it. You have, you feel metaphor in you. This, yeah, this kindness, this acceptance. Feel it, know it, deep. Until it's gone. Then he was pointing out. We rarely notice the joy that comes from having let go. Ajahn Sumedho pointed it out in his own way many times. <laughs> but he was more a wisdom type. <laughs> he said, he said yeah, Nibbana is an acquired state, uh, taste, you know. <laughs> it's like we not, never notice the piece of, of ending of you know, clinging. We never notice it. You know, we're already straight onto something else. But now, when you're relaxed and that is already, you can stay like that for a while and then notice the next moment of peace and really experience that peace, which is a little moment of not clinging. Nibbana, some people call it. Yeah? So, I'll leave you on this. Thank you.